Welcome back to season two of Soundlore, the official podcast of Indiana University's Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, where we sound off about recent scholarship, ideas, and current happenings from the fine folks who have crossed paths with our department. My name is Jeremy Reed, producer and introducer of this podcast, but this time I'm stepping into the role as host. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Daniel Reed, frequently confused as my long-lost family relation, but more often recognized as one of the defining faculty members of our department's most recent decades. Today, we're celebrating his career with us on the advent of his retirement. Daniel has had a long relationship with the IU Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology, beginning with his time as a graduate student, later as director of the Archives of Traditional Music, and most recently as the Laura Bolton Professor of Ethnomusicology. He is the author of Dan Gay Performance, Mask and Music in Contemporary Côte d'Ivoire, and Abidjan, USA, Music, Dance, and Mobility in the Lives of Four Ivorian Immigrants, as well as numerous articles and encyclopedia entries. He has received a wide range of awards and fellowships for his scholarship, as well as his teaching. If you ask nicely, you might also get to hear recordings of his musical groups, Blue Sky Back and Monkey Puzzle. I'm honored to have taken seminars with him and to call him a friend. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Daniel Reed. Thank you, son. <laughs> Jeremy. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm going to probably annoy some folks with uh, this particular approach, but I want to start with some rapid fire questions that will segue into a more intimate conversation. You know, we talked about destabilizing ethnographic methodology, but I don't think we talked nearly enough about distracting it with nonsense questions. <laughs> um, so what is your favorite drink? My favorite drink? Uh, alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Your choice. Okay, my favorite drink is probably iced tea. Iced tea. Sweet or unsweet? Unsweet. When are you the most productive? Morning. Who is your inspiration and why? Um, of the many, Karamogo Dumbia. Man, I live within uh, in Mali. Summer or winter? Winter. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Um, Quebec. What is your favorite number and why? Um, 13. <laughs> why? Because I'm not supposed to say, that's not supposed to be your favorite number. <laughs> sure. And, and, and also like very anti-French of you since, you know, like, like 13 in French culture, I think is like, yeah. like truly the devil. Right. Yeah, we need a 14th. Uh, yeah. Your favorite cake flavor? Chocolate. How do you start your day? Um, how do I start my day? Um, let's see. It, it, it varies from day to day, honestly, but, um, very quickly, uh, coffee. Uh, in which subject were you worst at school? Math. In which subject were you best? English. So I think that's a good segue into the thing that you've become known for, which is ethnomusicology. Um, I like Michael Backen's definition of ethnomusicology, which is the study of people engaging with music and why it's meaningful that they do so. Mm -hmm. So before we you know, think about you as an ethnomusicologist, what is your earliest musical memory? My earliest musical memory? Uh, that's a good question. Um, that's not a question anyone's ever asked me, but I can tell you what some of my earliest musical memories are, perhaps. Sure. Um, I certainly remember um, my parents um, playing on uh, hi-fi, kind of pre-stereo um, uh, music playing device we had. It was a... It was a turntable device but it was not it was just a single speaker in a big wooden cabinet um they would play classical music um but more than that i remember their um 
their folk revival stuff. So, um, you know, Pete Seeger, uh, Judy Collins, uh, Joan Baez, Bob Dylan, all the way up to sort of Simon and Garfunkel with some of the folk Rocky kind of stuff. They stopped there. Um, so, uh, um, Beatles and things like that. My older brother and I got into, and that was uh, that was our our real first popular music love and inspiration. Yeah. And was anyone playing music, uh, singing, or instruments? Uh, my mother was a uh, classical uh, violinist, violinist, and French horn um, player. She played in the, lo the local symphony orchestra back when small cities had those, uh, and she taught violin in the house. So. Um, that was a little scary sometimes. <laughs> Violin is, you know, unlike the guitar, which you can you know, sound kind of okay right from, sure. from the get-go. Takes a little while before you don't, you know, scare everybody away in the kind of immediate radius of your uh, home. So uh, a little screechy, but that is okay. Um, so uh, my dad was not. He sang a lot, but he had been in uh, in Ron and Don the banjo twins when he was younger, but. By the time I came along, he was not actively doing that anymore. So, but he was, he was very musical, liked to sing a lot, and listen to the music in the car and sing and what have you. And was that immediately encouraged for your brother and you? Oh yeah, yeah. So I, I started on drums when I was six, because uh, I was kind of not beating on everything in the house, so they decided they would try to you know channel that in a constructive direction. Um, I got a, a black practice pad and a snare drum. I very quickly broke, put a hole in the snare drum, <laughs> so I had only the practice pad, and that was rather dull. So I had, it was more fun to climb trees and run around. So I, I let that go. Um, then I went to piano, but my older brother had already been playing piano for two years, and we were were two years apart. And we were very we were very competitive back then. He was already good, and so I stayed with the piano for several years. Then I gave it up. Then I played violin after that, and um, when I was in third and fourth grade, I was uh, embarrassed to walk around with a violin case, which was, I'm embarrassed to say now, I really wish that had not been the case. I wish I would have stuck with it because I love the violin. So that didn't last very long. But then when I was about uh, 10, I think I got my first guitar and that really stuck. So yeah, I played guitar and then other derivatives of guitar since then. And at what point did that uh, become your musical or your social identity? Um, in high school, for sure. Yeah, um, I was a soccer playing uh, rock musician. So walking down the halls of my high school with uh, um, wearing a leather jacket, uh, carrying my guitar with uh, Dutch clogs and a Greek fisherman's hat and long hair. There probably couldn't have been too many folks like that. No, I was pretty unusual. Yeah, and that's an unusual kind of like social crossover for that time in high yeah. school. Yeah, I graduated in 1981, year Reagan. Uh, became president so yeah it was definitely yeah I, I was noticed let's say and, and what sorts of kids were you hanging out on the on the music side of things um in those early times um when i became very serious about music uh, my my bands were playing things like rush and led zeppelin and um that kind of, kind of hard rocky kind of music um and but i've always uh, had a soft spot for kind of folky stuff as well so I've, the first songs i wrote were actually um you know, kind of acoustic guitar voice kind of things, more kind of folk, rocky kind of things. And, and what was your eventual path to ethnomusicology, thinking about music in that way? Yeah, so um, as I continued um, developing as a musician and a, and a songwriter, um, I just became 
drawn to uh, difference I, I, as I started, began began to develop skills in recording music and arranging music. You know, you you lose that that um, sort of magical moment, sonic experience of just hearing the whole the kind of gestalt and you can analyze everything and understand where everything, where all the sounds come from and how they're produced. So after I had to kind of reach that point in my in my musical development, I, I found myself really drawn to things I didn't understand. And I had to search farther and farther for, for those. So for instance, when I was in college, I worked in a language laboratory and I found this old um, dusty cabinet where some uh, folkways records were uh, held and, and I would pull them out and listen to them while um, working, and then I drove all the rest of the employees crazy. But I would listen to you know, um, you know, um, you know Zulu chants and and uh, you know, the um, you know, um, what's this, the singing uh, Inuit? Um, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't remember the name, but uh, I, 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 yeah, when the, the two women stand very close together. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, and I just love the stuff, and so. Um, so my as a as a creator of music, I, I, I was searching for inspiration far and wide, um, and at the same time, sort of post high school, uh, post college, um, my favorite reading to do on the side was just about religious traditions and mythology around the world. So I was reading, um, I'll admit it here, Joseph Campbell, <laughs> and people like that, um, and uh, you know, Tao Te Ching and. Um, various uh, you know, Buddhist um, materials, and, uh, and so um, at a certain point, I got tired of trying to make a living playing music and waiting tables to support my musical habits, um, and thought for the first time, what what if I didn't um, try to pursue a career as a musician? What 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 else would I might I do? And everything sort of came together in a kind of satori moment of clarity, where I thought, oh, what about studying ethnomusicology and and. Uh, people put these different interests that I have together in, in one field and that's what they, what they call it. So I um, I was especially drawn to the full court ethnomusicology combination that this program offered. So I turned in a new, a new direction at that point and started studying ethnomusicology. At that point, the discipline would have been, uh, I think, only like, what, 40 years old, maybe? Yeah, I started in 92. So it was, yeah, yeah a little less than 40 years old. And so when did you first encounter the work? Oh, that's a good. Oh, I know. I do know when I first encountered the word. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, through uh, a Paul Winter concert album, uh, yeah, <laughs> that uh, uh, featured Paul Berliner playing the Mbira on the opening track. Wow! And so and there was this Paul Berliner guy, and he called himself an ethnomusicologist, and so I went and got his you know, Soul Mbira record and wow. and book, and and yeah, so it was through sort of you know real popular music um, um, consumption more or less that I, I bumped into the word at first. Yeah. Huh. I, I had no idea that Paul Berliner was, I mean, I mean, was he formally involved or, or was it like he was, a sample? He was a guest appearer. Yes. Uh, it was a guest appearance. It was an album they, called, they uh, created called Common Ground. Um, and they, I think they recorded in a barn in Vermont or something. And so Paul was brought in to, to just oh. hang out and play a beer with them. And, huh, uh, that's interesting. It's it's interesting to think about. Um, I've always thought of eth ethnomusicology as um, you know, commenting on you know, things that happen either in the mainstream or outside the mainstream. But I've, I've never thought of someone encountering ethnomusicology in, in, in that particular setting. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I I, I um, um, you know, there's a long 
uh, path from that moment to um, when I uh, um, decided to study ethnomusicology. But in fact, my understanding of uh, and my draw to um, music outside of sort of mainstream media um, goes back way before that to, um, I would say, Ravi Shankar, again, same sort of phenomenon, to whom I was introduced by George Harrison and his work with Beatles. Uh, and um, then my introduction to African music came in the form of um, a babysitter coming over when I was seven years old with a, um, a, a record by Osibisa Woyaya, a group of um, uh, Ghanaian, Niger Nigerian, Trinidadian, various folks from African diaspora who gathered together in London and formed a sort of like African version of Santana, kind of the way I described them. They were wonderful. Yeah, I was seven years old. She brought this record over, and I, I just loved it so much. I saved up my allowance, went out and bought it. So, but again, it was many years later that I decided to study African music. Yeah, I have questions about that later. I, I, I also want to know about um, you know, if you come into this program as, as a musician, especially at that point, mm -hmm. um, not to paint things in black and white, but our, our department is famously one part of a divide between people that are anthrop anthropologically trained and who study music and people that are musically trained who happen to study in an anthropological way did you um you know, how was i guess the initial kind of like navigation of your identity as a musician and coming into a place where the primary mode of you know the approach to ethnomusicology was you know from from an analytic and, and anthropological perspective oddly enough that that appealed to me because uh for for whatever reason, unlike my brother and my mother, I had always kind of kept my music and my um, educational work kind of um, ideologically separate. Uh, I took very little um, coursework in uh, sort of music when I was an undergrad. I was an English major. I, studied, I took a lot of philosophy. I took a lot of history and political science. And I've always been kind of fundamentally interdisciplinary in orientation. I guess I, I thought of what I was doing in school was sort of giving me ideas to, to write about. Yeah. So, um, so I, I was not um, as drawn to the idea of, a, of eth an ethnomusicology program in a school of music because that just didn't seem like the right place for me. Oddly enough, that's where my first job ended up being in the school of music at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. But, um, but uh, at my, in my early educational days, uh, that's what my orientation was. So the idea of an interdisciplinary setting and, and combining folklore and ethnomusicology seemed like a really good fit for me. It was the place I was most excited about coming to. And is that part of what wound up drawing you back here after oh, yeah. only a couple of years, I think, in yeah. yeah, yeah, it very, very much was, along with the African Studies Program, which again, same same idea. It's, it's a very interdisciplinary, dynamic community of scholars from different orientations who come together to talk about things. And yeah. I love that. So. Yeah, so then let's dive into that. You know, there are plenty of scholars who are, I guess, you know, like somewhat promiscuous in their research interests and either cover multiple topical areas or multiple geographic areas. You've sustained you know, a long a long career in one particular place in one particular region. Um, what, what drew you there and what's you know, kept you there all these years? Well, I wasn't entirely sure which direction I was going to head when I came to graduate school in terms of um, uh, geographic world area and exactly what I would study. I was not one of these people who um, you know, had spent a long time you know, in the Peace Corps or in some other um, uh, capacity in some part of the world and then wanted to go back there to study the music. Um, but as I got to know Ruth Stone, 
Um, and she came to understand my interests. One day she just handed me um, Musique Dans, Dans Music by Hugo Zemp, 1971 um, book, which is a beautiful book from the kind of earlier era of um, anthropological, ethnomusicological work where, you know, uh, the goal was to study the, the full title is something like musical thought and social and social life and uh, among the dollar or something like that and um uh it uh it just it really struck me i, I already had heard his um recordings of dom masks i had been fascinated by masks i had a collection of masks already and it's really really drawn to the idea of a mask is something that simultaneously kind of conceals identity and reveals other aspects of identity. Um, and uh, so um, everything kind of came together sort of intellectually, if you will, and to some degree aesthetically in uh, in that book. And so I, I, knew, I knew I wanted to go there. And so um, that was what um, had, had me in that particular direction, uh, initially at least. And then um, when I got there, it's interesting because Gerhard Kubik, an ethnomusicologist at work, has a, uh, a wonderful article about, um, how he kind of glibly says at one point, in reflecting on his life, something like, uh, um, you know, really all we're doing is kind of going out in the world and learning more about ourselves. We kind of are playing out our own psychological dilemmas and issues, but in the ethnographic work we do, he says somewhat facetiously, you know, but to some degree it's true. <laughs> so I, um, I come from a, a divorced family where sort of negotiating of boundaries between two different sides became kind of my role as a young child. And so I was drawn to, um, coincidentally or, or un unintentionally, negotiation of boundaries between sort of the, the historically Muslim North and the historically Christian South, um, very different kind of cultural um, um, and ethnic group kind of designations that kind of come together in this frontier zone and about two thirds of the way up in, in the country of Cote d'Ivoire. And in particular, the Da are in a mountainous region, um, and they have been very resistant to outside, but quote unquote, outside forces like Islam and Christianity. Um, at least they've been represented that way. And I was just curious to see how that would play out through something like mask performance. And um, and so um, it was fascinating to see how mask performance remained relevant and, and uh, important to them in their lives and how they kind of negotiated difference through these performances. Um, kind of positioning themselves toward um, many aspects of the post-colonial state, um, the, ju the judiciary, uh, popular culture, popular music, um, other ethnic groups, um, um, these, you know, Islam, Christianity, these various sorts of things through this traditional, ostensibly uh, self-defined traditional form. So that uh, really uh, stoked my interest further in so I just continued with that, and, and um, that sort of naturally led to um, you know, working with people who had come from Cote d'Ivoire and then were now bodily moving themselves to other parts of the world and sort of using their performance traditions to uh, um, connect and, um, and understand themselves in relationship to this world in other settings. So that's why their immigrant work, although that makes it sound like I had planned it that way, and I was actually <laughs> stumbled into that immigrant work. That's another matter. Sure. Um it, was it ever tempting to, you know, I mean, did you have interests that might have taken you to other parts of the continent or is just this long kind of focused, engaged look at this one particular community? And well, when uh, the uh, Civil War happened in Cote d'Ivoire, 
that kind of interrupted my, uh, I had to, I already gotten funding to go back there. I had to give it funding back for two successive summers. Um, and then finally ended up taking quite a long hiatus from, from Cote d'Ivoire because of the unstable political situation there. I did start a, uh, a new project in, in um, Mali and Guinea that I was never able to bring to full fruition, partly for, for health reasons. But um, uh, so, but it's still, you know, the you know, West African region. Uh, I, I mean, I could have gone many other places, but sure. it, it made sense to me that once I had developed relationships and, and gotten um, sort of well acquainted with that part of Africa to, to continue working in that area with linguistic reasons and all, all kinds of reasons. Yeah. Back on the home front, you know, as I was reading through your CV and thinking through the kind of like trajectory of things, you, most of your career has been um, these like long engagements either with the research area or even with the place. Um, I'm curious between 1992 and, and 2021, you know, what changes have you seen in Bloomington or what continuities have, have you seen over a a long, a long time. Well, um, the night, the Bloomington I moved to in 1992 did not have a Lotus Festival. It did not have a WFHB. Um, it had a WFIU, which was um, great, but it had mostly classical music and some jazz, and um, but no um, you know, world music, quote unquote, program at that point. Um, there was one commercial radio station that played kind of terrible pop music from the time. These things I'm not so daunted toward, um, and um, so it was in terms of the sort of media landscape, and um, uh, it was of course still Bloomington. The school of music was here. There's a lot of riches. I loved going to the you know, what used to be called early music institutes performances and that sort of thing. But in many respects, it was it was not um, the sort of um, uh, hotbed of uh, of musical diversity that um, it has become now. And, um, although uh, that said, there was in many ways more live music performance at that point. Um, um, and the, the, the local music community was, was very much thriving. There were many places to play. And so I got to know a lot of musicians and started um, also performing music while I was studying graduate school. Um, but um, yeah, so those are some of the changes. Many, many of the, of the sort of uh, areas encircling the city were you know, farm farms back then still that are now you know, subdivisions and what have you that's right. that, that's kind of happened everywhere so. yeah now, it's interesting that you mentioned the live music aspect i've spent some time with lee williams mm -hmm. um you know, going through some of the old posters that he has from when he was the uh booking person for jake's and, and a couple of other spots second story second story yeah. um and in in some ways you know kind of like you're saying i actually perceive bloomington to have had a much more vibrant live music scene but that might be my mute it might be my musical tastes well you know you're, you're you're right um i was kind of correcting myself midstream there because while there was not a wfhb and there was not a, a lotus festival there were many clubs. There was a you know, super high quality um, and consistent performances in jazz, and sort of punk, and all, lots of different forms of rock. Um, uh, obviously, the art music and classical music scene has always been very strong here. Um, you know, folk, you know, singer songwriters, uh, you know, 
regularly um, coming from the local community. They're, they're, of course, the old time music and dance team here, which is nationally known. So um, that was very true then, and and, and was more vibrant and um, and present at that point than, than it is today, for sure. Um, so and I mean, there was a period of time where Bloomington became known and was on the cover of Billboard magazine for its acapella scene. You know, I was in an acapella band, and you know, coincidentally, there were three other very active acapella bands at the time. So, was that the impetus for starting Monkey Puzzle, or did that come later? The impetus for starting Monkey Puzzle was actually from my time in Boston when I was in, in a, a band with instruments um, that um, was trying to to make it, quote unquote, in the music industry in Boston. And it was very expensive to do so. There were you know, probably a thousand original mu music bands trying to play in about five very uh, most most uh, uh, high profile clubs and so you had to pay you had to pay for mailing lists and recording costs and all these sorts of things that we used to have to do back then um, and so my brother who is in the band actually came up with the idea of singing acapella music on the street to get to make money to fund our expensive band that we were trying to make a living playing in <laughs> and so we arranged some various popular music songs and Jackson 5 stuff and Paul Simon and whatever else and started doing it on the street. Uh, and it was so much fun. There was such an immediacy about it. Um, just, um, you know, no stage, just, you know, a small battery powered PA, but, you know, right there on the street with people that I um, really was drawn to it. I thought, well, I'd like to go back to that someday. So, um, so um, eventually I did that here in, in Bloomington. And coincidentally, there were other acapella bands that starting about the same time. Sure. Um, and, and also around that same time, think, thinking about the emergence of the Lotus Festival in, I think, 1994, which would have been... Uh, 93, I think, for sure. Which would have been your first and second year of grad school. Yeah. And you know, that time, the early 90s, is also a, you know, it's a shift for our field. Uh, Shadows in the Field is coming out around yeah. that time. Um, our version of the reflexive turn, our version of kind of updating our our political sensibilities is happening during that time. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that is also understanding the kind of public dimension of what ethnomusicology can do. Mm -hmm. you know, what was the initial reception to something like the Lotus Festival popping up? Um, well, for me, it was a celebration. I loved it. Um, I got involved in it, not that first year, but um, pretty, qu pretty quickly. Um, and um, uh, I think um, it's not for everyone necessarily. I mean, I think different members of the faculty were drawn to it and others were, were not as much so. Um, but um, you're right in thinking about that time as a, I think, a, a sort of important moment in the field. Maybe not unlike in some ways the, the, the period of time we're in now where the field is kind of thinking about itself and redefining itself. At that point, it was you know, in the, the post-colonial moment, the, the reflexivity, the, the trying to understand the kind of colonial roots, colonialist roots of the discipline and, and um, figure out what, what that means for the work we do. Um, you know, Tony Seeger's Wise Fee Singing had just been out for a couple, four years. Sure. Um, uh, the first edition of Shadows in the Field actually came out just before I went to the field. Um, I picked it up at SEM almost on my way to the airport. It was like, uh, it, it was, uh, I think it might be, the publication date might say 97, but I think it actually came out in late 96. I, so I took that with me to the field, and that was very foundational for my thinking about the field. So it was a pretty exciting time to be in ethnomusicology. Yeah, yeah no, and, and, and by referencing the Lotus Festival, it's not to say that it has anything to do with what we do, but it emerged.
emerges, I think, in the shadow of something like the American Folklore Festival, mm-hmm. which is kind of a crucible moment for um, some aspects of public folklore and, and whether or not it's you know, a good idea to produce festivals you know, in, in that particular way. Right. Right. It's uh, it's been um, I have uh, played many roles with Lotus. I've loved having it here. I've been everything from volunteering many years to performing at it at points to um, bringing some of my Ivorian uh, immigrant friends here to do performances. I mean, some of my favorite moments uh, in my career here are, for instance, watching a stilt um, mask spirit performer and entourage sort of, you know, kind of dancing, you know, up Washington Street, crossing Third Street, and snarling traffic, and yeah. uh, Lee, Lee Williams running around trying to figure out what to do. Is um, that was an exciting sort of bringing together the worlds for me. And so, yeah, I, I'm uh, as problematic as, as the whole idea of world music is, and the idea of a world music festival is. I think Lotus has been a wonderfully enriching um, uh, institution for this community. Yeah, it's also been a point of intersection for me. The the fall after I came back from my major fieldwork stints in 2019, um, one of my earliest, you know, kind of group of friends in Jordan are part of a group called 47 Soul. Mm-hmm. And I had just seen them in, in Jordan just a couple months prior. And because of my infrequency going back to Jordan, I, I thought this will probably be the last time I see you for a bit. Mm-hmm. And they hadn't been announced for Lotus yet, but they just had done a tiny desk concert for NPR. Mm-hmm. And so I'm watching that, and I realize that the person who shared it is Lorraine Martin, mm-hmm. who then in the post says, and they'll be coming to Lotus in the fall. And so I got to see them here. That's wonderful. After having met them over there. Right. And, and so yeah, I, I, I agree, as, as difficult as, I mean, I mean there's, there is no version of what we do that is immune from... <laughs> critique right and 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 festivals being in public yeah it's it's open to to more but i think in maybe a more meaningful way because it's not just what we do in our in in our little enclaves it's Mm -hmm. something that's actually out in the community yeah i enjoyed um once i took on the role of uh um we started this a few years back and i don't think it just continued but um lotus when sunny fast our former student was directing it um, started a process of each year inviting one of us from the faculty to go and sort of just give some kind of presentation to the public about um, the um, imminent festivals lineup. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. That was an opportunity to kind of reach out in the community and yeah. sort of share with them kind of how ethnomusicologists look at it and think about these performing traditions. And that was fun. And, and pivoting for, on something that you said a moment ago about redefinitions, your research life has taken on a bit of a redefinition in, in the past in the past years um, you've you know, taken a turn towards both mobility and then also human ability as well focusing uh, auto ethnographically on, on your experience as a person with Parkinson's mm-hmm. um, uh, well I guess the questions are twofold one is for those who didn't uh, attend the musical bodies uh, symposium maybe talking a bit about your recent research with Ross Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also, um, have you thought about the resonances between your focus on global mobility and now your turn towards uh, human ability, including your own sense of both kind of mental and physical movement? I have a bit, yeah. So um, let me start by sort of going back even a little bit further to when um, 
to how I ended up starting the process, the, the project on uh, um, working with immigrants from Cote d'Ivoire in this country. Um, I was in my office over on FES where we used to be, and I got a, a voicemail from, uh, from um, or no, an email initially from uh, a woman who said she was married to a mask performer uh, who lived in New York City. Um, he, he practiced many of the same traditions that they had seen on my website that was associated with my first book, Dogging a Performance. And they were just thrilled and wanted to meet me. And I'm being busy, young faculty member. I, I didn't seize that opportunity. I, you know, amazed that I did. I, I, you know, we exchanged some emails, but I didn't ever um, get to know them or talk to them on the phone. I got busy and kind of forgot about it. And then um, um, my father, uh, at one point, uh, uh, called me uh, and left a message on my voicemail in my office and said, um, uh, he ran. He first of all, he ran an outdoor school. Uh, in the country, outside of uh, Mansfield, Ohio, the city where I was, where I was born, uh, and sometimes we would rent out buildings in a facility to different people for different functions. So he said, you know, "There's, there's this, there's this guy here from Ivory Coast, and I just, there, I, he, I recognize just enough things to I me. Mean, he, he says he does dance, still masking, and it just it reminded me of some of the pictures I've seen of what you've done." And so I said, "Okay." So anyway. Um, turns out it was the same person <laughs> who called me several years earlier from New York City and now is living in Mansfield, Ohio and was the only, to his knowledge and my knowledge at that point, um, West African performing musician and certainly mask performer anywhere in that part of Ohio and was wanting to produce a so-called African music festival at my dad's, my dad's school and uh, then they ended up inviting me there to give a talk as part of that festival. And um, while I was there, I was walking down a pathway with a guy from Atlanta who took my hand and said, hey, come to Atlanta and study me. <laughs> I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so that project really chose me. Um, and, uh, and I got to know a lot of people in this com community and really had a lot of fun spending a decade um, working with them, um, trying to understand how um, their musical and dance and masking practices had had uh, moved across space and time, what that meant for them and what that meant for their stories and their lives, and that was uh, really fun. So um, there's a very interesting connection that you draw between that and and my own um, new project with uh, um, Ross Brillhart on um, sound, music, and Parkinson's disease, which of course is uh, something that affects one's mobility. Um, um, that um, is something I've, I've been really impressed by the work that's been done in, in music and health overall. Gregory Pars's work is very inspiring to me. It's work on edutainment and HIV AIDS. And Austin Okibo, our former student, who's done wonderful work on um, use of music and um, HIV AIDS and choral music in South Africa and many other folks. Um, so I liked the, the sort of immediacy of the the relevance for people in their lives of that of that work. Um, I kind of dipped my toe into it with a study of um, HIV, HIV ed, ed, edutainment campaigns in uh, in in West Africa um, for the Bars and Cohen volume, uh, and just wanted to do more to, to do more of that um, from way back, but just had not let myself do so. And um, so when I finally um, was lucky enough to have Ross Brillhart become the Lowell Bolton Jr. Fellow this past year, and I knew that we had to spend some time together doing something research-wise. I thought, well, why don't we just get together and talk for 
um, you know, once a week and see where, see where it leads. And uh, we've had a lot of fun with that. It's uh, It's been a, quite an interesting new project and it's been having, as you alluded to in your, your question, defined myself as an Africanist for so long and having really published almost not at all outside of that realm. Um, it's kind of liberating to just uh, sort of try something new here at this uh, sort of twilight in my career um, and uh, um, uh, explore, uh, sort of throw out the rule books and, and just see what happens. And so we're really, we're calling it a, a dialogic ethnography at this point. Um, it's very collaborative. It's, it's um, you know, we're, we're kind of breaking down the, the, the binary between researcher and researched and analysis and, 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 um, content and and um, uh, uh, you know st teacher and student and just you know it's a it's a really interesting experience it's an experiment I guess I would say and, and so far I've been really pleased with uh, um, what we've uh, what we've come up with and ex excited to see what will happen as we continue and you know, it must be you know a vulnerable and you know, emotional experience bringing in you know your own personal experience with Parkinson's. Um, in, into this public way, um, yeah, and I know it's not something that you necessarily shied away from, but uh, I think you tried to keep it separate from, you know, your scholarly life. And... Yeah, I guess that's true. It's you know, as a performer um, and a songwriter, I have not. I've been very public with it. Um, I've I've done the whole Unitarian Universalist church service where I. Uh, did the the sermon on you know struggles with Parkinson's and played songs that I wrote uh, on that theme and um, uh, and I've done benefits to raise money for Michael J Fox uh, Foundation and, um, and yeah so I've been very public in that sense but um, I I have not thought of, and and I've just as a person with Parkinson's and a researcher I've course researched a lot about Parkinson's myself to understand it uh, and that has included um, trying to understand the roles that sound and music play in uh, in my life and um, as a person with Parkinson's so it, this is a kind of exciting moment because these two different worlds kind of come together for me in a way that um, that is my, my life as a researcher and a scholar of music and sound and my life as a person with Parkinson's in a way that in that sense I had not done before so and it's interesting you Kind of, I guess, Riley mentioned the notion of like the twilight of, of your career. Now I've got a, a question here. You know, retirements and departures, I think, are too often thought as these kind of limiting kind of bookends to something. But yeah, I, I think we can also think of it in terms of what you get to do next, mm -hmm. because it's not it's, it's not the end of it's the end of a certain period. But we all have moments where we kind of close the door on one thing and, and step into in a new phase um so and you're talking about this with this particular research project so what do you get to do next um what are you looking forward to well i'm looking forward to playing more music which i have not allowed myself to do much of in the last several years um i'm looking forward to being able to spend more of my energy and time on the treatment of parkinson's you know explicitly defined um there's a there's a local parkinson's dance group that i'd like to be involved in there's a uh, Parkinson's boxing uh, group that I, that I was involved in for a little while, but it was just taking too much time away from from work, and I, I needed to drop it. Um, so there's a lot of things I can do specifically to um, delay the progression of the disease. The, 
I'm starting, for example, in January, um, the Lee, Sil Lee Silverman voice training program, which is um, my voice is becoming weaker and weaker from Parkinson's. And um, that's a way to sort of try to uh, counteract that, that tendency so I can still produce sound. Um, so all those things I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to maybe traveling a bit more again once COVID lets us. Um, but accidentally, um, now I find myself in a new research um, project that um, having really felt like I was kind of overwhelmed with other aspects of my work and, and my, my health and my time and have not been as active as a researcher in the past um, several years. Um, I now feel very much re-enthused and uh, re-inspired to continue with research. So um, I'm sure that you know, Ross and I have talked about continuing this on for uh, you know, post past his time as Bolton um, Fellow and, and just seeing where it leads. So I'm excited about it. And what advice do you have for all of us? Yeah. Both in closing an interview, but also you know, in closing out you know, this chapter of your career. Follow your passion. Um, do what you love. Um, make it um, relevant to the world around you. I mean, I was first drawn to ethnomusicology, um, partly just because of sound, like I said, and, and the idea of, sort of bringing together sort of study of belief and sound, but also because I saw it as a way to help um, us sort of mitigate difference and understand one another as people in, in the world. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche thing to say these days, but we need that more than ever um, today. So, you know, the the hard work of making sure we do our work as ethically as possible is is there before us and um but um i still believe that this is a worthwhile endeavor and and so i'd love to see you continue to uh, all of you continue to pursue it as a means of making the world a better place so. well and i refuse to let things be too serious so i have to ask another throwaway question it, you, you mentioned the parkinson's boxing group which is is an amazing idea uh, did did you have a walkout song, or if you had to choose a, a walkout song, what would it be? Okay, first of all, let me clarify. Uh, we don't actually box one another <laughs> in the box. So this is a, a phenomenon that started started in Indianapolis. Uh, it's called rock steady boxing, and has literally spread all over the world. It turns out that coincidentally. The kinds of uh, physical um, movements that um, one needs to um, master as a boxer are uh, very good at counteracting the effects of Parkinson's for various reasons. Uh, so we we box, um, you know, we hit sort of you know, targets that someone else holds, or, or or we hit punching bags or something like that, but not each other. That would actually be counterproductive, <laughs> as we know from Muhammad Ali's story and everything. But anyway, um, my walkout song. What would it be? Um, let's see. Um, oh, I did pick one song. Let's see. Uh, how about Just One Victory by Todd Rundgren? <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today. Sure. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, and thanks for all of your time with us. Oh, I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Sound Lore is an official production of the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University. Produced by David McDonald and Jeremy Reed. Music provided by Pagliacci and some other clowns. Engineered by Amanda Luke. 
questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, leave us a message at 812-855-0396. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Soundlore on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.